Now, as Peter went here and there among them, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body he said Tabitha arise and she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up then calling the saints and widows he presented her alive and it became known all throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to the book of Acts. We find ourselves in chapter nine today. We're gonna be looking at verse 32. If you're new to New Heights Church, we absolutely love the Bible. In fact, we kind of gear our entire Sunday morning to God's word. Uh, we believe that I'm just the under shepherd. The shepherd of this congregation is Jesus Christ. He is the authority. And the way we allow him to have that authority in this church is through his word. He speaks to us through his word. And so we, we really do love the Bible. And so we preach it verse by verse, line by line, through the books of the Bible, precept upon precept. We love it. And so if you have your Bible, like I said, I hope you do. We're in Acts chapter 9. We're looking at verse 32 today because today I want to talk about a difficult subject. I know we're looking at two miracles. Well, actually three, really, because the very last line is a third miracle, what we'll talk about. But I'm talking about a, a difficult topic because when you talk about miracles, you have to at least address suffering. So how many of you guys, today's message really, I could have titled it Perspective. How many of you guys wear glasses? You know, it's a major difference when you have your glasses. Right now, I, I just see a bunch of blurry blobs. When I put my glasses on, oh, okay, it's people I love. I know these faces. I remember one time in an airplane, because Liz and I served as Assemblies of God World Missionaries for 10 years. We were in India and Thailand. And you're doing those trips from, we would do from New York all the way to Delhi nonstop. It was a long flight. By the time we got done and we'd be walking down the aisle, the, the entire plane would just be clapping that we were exiting. That's kind of our story. But I remember one particular uh, flight, and I don't remember where we were flying from or where we were flying to, but I just, I remember it was at nighttime because we, we tried our hardest to fly during the night because most of our kids would sleep except Asher. 
And on this particular flight, they had put the kids about like four rows behind us, but Allie was old enough at that point that she could kind of manage. And so I took the opportunity to sit by Liz and enjoy peace and quiet and just pray for the people in front of my kids. And I remember it was really dark on the plane. It was at night and I had to go to the bathroom. So I got up and I went to the bathroom and coming back, I had left my glasses on my seat and so I didn't have them and it was dark and I couldn't see very well. Sat down next to who I thought was my wife and just started talking about how gross the bathroom was. And I was like, that was disgusting. I know bathrooms are gross, but that was nasty. And I didn't help. Man, my stomach hurts. I got gas. Do you have Pepto-Bismol? And as I'm sitting there explaining my gas problems, all of a sudden the captain flips the lights on to make an announcement. And I'm not sitting by my wife. I'm sitting by another lady who's just staring at me. And I said, wow, I am so sorry. Don't have my glasses on. It was dark. You're not my wife. And now you know I have gas. My name's Justin Hansen. Nice to meet you. Went and found my wife. It's amazing. Those lights flipped on. You've got perspective, right? put my glasses on, I've got perspective. Today I want to talk about suffering because sometimes a topic that's often misunderstood in the church, it's a topic that's very personal for me because I lost a father to a brain tumor. Uh, My father was a man of faith who never doubted his healing, by the way, yet he didn't receive it, at least on this side of eternity. And I've been told that suffering cannot be God's will for me or for anybody else. I've been told this throughout my life. And I remember especially when my father was going through this, we, we would hear this. Um, and I, I, was, I remember my father, one person even advised him not, not even to speak about suffering because, Pastor Jim, you've been promised unconditional healing and wholeness if you just have enough faith. And these statements came from a theology that has become known as the prosperity gospel. People who were convinced that uh, we as Christians, we can avoid suffering. And I I remember my dad going through that nine-year battle, if I'm just to be completely honest with you, it was difficult in the Pentecostal circles because I just remember uh, hearing my father so many times when he would share his diagnosis with people and he would explain the different options that he had, the shame that he would get for being willing to go through treatment. And I, I remember so many people interrupting him with statements such as, man, Pastor Jim, you've got to stop talking about this right now. Just speaking of this diagnosis is agreeing with Satan, and it could bring this into being. Suffering is never a part of God's will, and I know God just wants healing and wholeness for you, Pastor Jim. Don't talk about it. Well, it was confusing for me as a kid watching my father battle a brain tumor for nine years and hearing these different things. Here's what I've come to realize as an adult that because there was a time in my life where I was very upset at those people with that theology. Very upset. It really bothered me. I've come to this place in my life where I realize that there are going to be times where people misunderstand certain doctrines in the Bible. You know, even the apostles, by the way, misunderstood suffering. In fact, the apostle Peter didn't want Jesus to speak of his coming crucifixion. You remember when Jesus told the disciples about his future suffering, death, and resurrection on the third day? Do you remember how Peter responded? He actually rebuked Jesus and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's Matthew 16, 22, by the way. To Peter, it was inconceivable that Jesus would ever be, would have to suffer and be killed. That just could not be a part of God's plan. And I don't know, maybe, maybe Peter instinctively rebuked Jesus because Jesus' words about his suffering death went against Peter's understanding of the kingdom of God. 
Remember, just before, Jesus told Peter that whatever Peter bound on earth would be bound in heaven. Whatever he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. Again, Matthew 16, 19. Maybe Peter just thought he could override the predictions by speaking against them. I mean, Jesus had just said that to Peter. So maybe, maybe Peter thought, I'm, I'm going to override this. You don't have to go through this. Whatever the reason for Peter's outburst, Jesus re- responded with a stinging rebuke. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The reaction's powerful. Jesus' reaction applies to false teaching today, that a doctrine that asserts suffering has no place in the life of a Christian. Now, one of the things I love, I learned this as a missionary, you know, the Assemblies of God has 16 fundamental truths, and, and I remember when Somebody told me in Africa they have 17 fundamental truths. And I said, really, what's the, what's the one truth that America doesn't have or the U.S. that Africa has? And it was they had the fundamental truth that the Christian will suffer. That was one of their fundamental truths. They found it so important in their doctrine that it became one of their fundamental truths. Boy, I hope the Assemblies of God in America would adopt that as well. Suffering is all throughout the Bible. It's pretty clear about the fact that God is at work, though, even through the suffering. So now hear me out, because I want to be crystal clear on this. Not every season of suffering is identical. All right, some suffering we bring on ourselves. Some falls our way because of the sin of others. Some's a part of the trials of daily life. Some even comes to us specifically uh, just because we're Christians. Just because we've said yes to following Jesus. But, but here's the deal. To put all of those experiences into one bucket would be so dangerous. And I've said this before from the pulpit. But to put all of those different uh, experiences when it comes to suffering in one bucket would actually do violence to a Christian who's experiencing suffering. So I need you to remember that. Today I I can't talk about all the different reasons that suffering will come into our life, but we're going to focus on one because of the text that we're in. But I want you to know the reason that you found yourself in a season of suffering could vary. It might be different. But one thing is always true. If you are hurting, it can be an opportunity to lean into God. It's an opportunity to learn something from God you might, you might not know otherwise. And we're, we're going to dig into this today from our text. And, and the benefit of knowing there are different types of suffering is that you don't have to assume that your suffering is a result of some terrible thing you've done. You know, First Peter 3.17 says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So what I want to do this morning is, is start off by saying this. I am so sorry for any of you who are here today who are experiencing suffering or pain or hurt or sickness. I am so sorry for what you are currently enduring. I'm going to start off by saying that. I have no perfect answer to why you're suffering and when it will end. But what I want to do today is point you to, to the Bible. I want to point you to Scripture. And by doing that, I'm pointing you to Jesus. And my prayer is that you would view the hardships of your life through the lens of Scripture. And you would see that suffering does have a purpose. Because the Bible brings clarity to difficult topics. Aren't you happy about that? The Bible brings clarity to difficult topics like sickness and suffering. The Bible gives us explanations and thoughts to help inspire comfort and spark hope in each of us. And suffering has this interesting and unique effect on us because it removes any facade of self-reliance. Any self-reliance that says, I can do this. I got this. 
Suffering kind of removes the concept in our mind of of self-reliance. And what it does, it helps us when we think all we need is us, (laughs) helps us to remember to know how great of a need we have for God. See, Timothy Keller says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. (laughs) And suffering has the ability to pull the paint off the wall. It has the ability to pull the facade that we put out in front of everybody and reveal who we are as men and women of character and men and women of God. Right? And here's here's the thing. If I'm going to summarize our sermon today, if I were to give one big idea and one summary and one sentence If you only hear one thing today, here's the thing I want you to listen to. Here's what I want you to hear today. Go home knowing this. Suffering is a tool for the gospel. I'm going to say it again. Hear me out. Suffering is a tool for the gospel. It's an instrument. It's a thing by which the gospel is made known. And it's a thing by which the gospel is proclaimed. It's a thing by, by the way in which the gospel is lived out in our lives. Suffering. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Because here's what we're going to kind of dissect this morning as we look at our text. Jesus, King of Kings, Jesus, hopefully the Lord of your life, is sovereign over suffering. That's a powerful statement. Jesus is sovereign over suffering. That's the first thing I want to draw our attention to today before we get into the text. I, I want you to know this. Jesus is sovereign over my suffering. He's sovereign over your suffering. He's sovereign over all the suffering that's happening in the world right now. Jesus is sovereign over the suffering in the world. Look with me at verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there and among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now last week we ended with verse 31, which tells us there was peace in the land. Now what's interesting is that because of verse 31, because of the peace in the land, we've got Peter and the disciples, all of a sudden they're able to move around. So persecution stopped in the sense that Saul's no longer trying to find them. He's not trying to round them up, throw them in jail, kill them. That kind of persecution at the moment has stopped. It ceased. Now people are kind of moving around. That's what they're doing. Peter's going from place to place. The disciples are moving around without the fear of being arrested. And so things are a little better right now for the church as a whole. And the ministry is going throughout all the country. And here is a key truth found in this text and all throughout the Bible. And if you're taking notes, write it down. The key to being able is being available. Okay, the key to being able is, is being available. So here we've got Peter making himself available. One of my all-time favorite stories, and I got a chance to meet this pastor as, as an adult, but one of my favorite stories uh, growing up was the story of a Pentecostal preacher by the name of David Wilkerson, founder of Teen Challenge. Love his story. Absolutely love David Wilkerson's story. In the late 50s, he was just a country preacher, He began traveling back and forth from Pennsylvania where he pastored to New York City. And the whole goal of him traveling to New York was to reach gang members. Gang members who were steeped in murder and violence. And eventually he reached out to the most notorious gang member by the name of Nicky Cruz. Now, and of course we know the rest of the story, Teen Challenges started. But but how did he become the guy to reach these gang members? 
Look, I, I love David Wilkerson. He, he truly was a hero of mine, and I, I got to meet him when I lived in New York City. David Wilkerson, he was a unique guy. You know, he was straight to the point. He, uh, I guess in today's world, you wouldn't say he had a whole lot of charisma. He just preached God's word with conviction. He just said how it was, but he's not necessarily the kind of guy that you would meet and be like, yeah, that, that is a charismatic leader. He's going to start something, and it's going to grow and explode and change the world. How does this guy, a country preacher in Pennsylvania, become the guy that goes and reaches gang members in New York City? Well, I believe one of the primary qualifications was availability. He was willing. He was available. I love what Bob Goff says. He says, God often uses the least qualified, most available people to get things done. I wonder, I wonder what God would do in your life because of a decision to show up. What could God do in the life of those around you if you decided to be available? All right? So that's the first thing I see. Another thing that I find interesting in this text is that this is the second time in Acts where Luke refers to the people who are following uh, Jesus as saints. Now the word saint, it's not like the sort of sacred thing. The word saint simply means devoted to your God. So a lot of people who were pagans, who served various idols, they would be considered saints because they were devoted to their God. It wasn't a new word. This was a common word in Greek culture. They were saints. They were devoted. Luke's pointing out to us that these people who are living in, in Lydda, they were, Lydda were saints. They were people who were living, off their, living their lives devoted to their God to the point that people began to recognize them as people who were devoted to Jesus. Man, there are people devoted to God. They are followers of Jesus. This person they followed, uh, they're so devoted to, to the point that they were being referred to as saints. So in tune with God. So, so focused on what, who he is and what he's doing. They're living out the great commission. They're living out the great commandment. They're living out their faith. That's what we want people at New Heights Church to do, by the way. We want to be known as, as a church of people who are committed to Jesus. And I'll be really bold. We don't want to be known as people who are committed to New Heights Church. We want to be people who are known as people who are committed to Jesus. And there's a difference. I want New Heights Church to be known as the church. Man, they are committed and devout followers of Jesus Christ. Not of Justin Hansen, not of anybody else, of Jesus Christ. They are a committed group of people to Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords. Come on. So, all right, moving on. They're introduced, we're, we're introduced in this text to a man by the name of Aeneas who happens to be paralyzed. Now the Bible doesn't actually say that Aeneas was a Christian. It's believed he is, but it doesn't say that he is. So we don't, we don't really know if he was or wasn't saved. It's possible that he wasn't saved and that God healed him and maybe he came to faith in Jesus. It's possible he was saved and he gets healed. Either way, God heals the man. Here's what I want you to notice in this text though. The most important thing, of course, is the salvation of a person's soul, not the healing of their body. Right? Okay, so I've told you this story before, but when I was a brand new pastor, I think I was 22 years old, took a church in upstate New York, was pastoring this church, and uh, all, all around New York, I was hearing about these new church plants that were experiencing miracle after miracle after miracle and awesome prayer meetings. And I remember I would call my grandpa, who was a pastor, and I would talk to him at least once a week, and, and he would always ask me, so what's happening? What, what miracles are happening? I remember one week telling him, Grandpa, I got nothing to tell you this week. Nothing to tell you. And I remember he asked me about one of the individuals. He said, 
because we would talk about the miracles, talk about things God's doing, and then we'd praise God about it. And I remember this particular week because he said, tell me about that, uh, the director again. Give me his testimony. I told him about his testimony. He said, well, what do you mean you don't have anything to praise God about? Hey, Justin, who, who, who's your savior again? Who saved you from sin? Who saved you from hell? Grandpa, come on. No, Justin, tell me, Jesus. Okay, what do you mean you don't got anything to praise God about? The greatest miracle of all is salvation, right? The salvation of somebody's soul. But now his name, so we see this here. I wanna, I, I'm going to make this point. I'm going to connect the dots. But the name Aeneas is actually a Greek name. It's believed he was a Jew, but that he was a Hellenist or, or a Jew following the Greek or Hellenistic culture. And I want you to notice he's been sick for eight years. That's what the text says. It's believed he was he possibly couldn't even move his arms or his legs. He was completely paralyzed. And he laid on this mat kind of 24-7 for the last eight years. Now listen, it's not easy to have prolonged sickness. It's not easy to have a sickness that won't go away, that you live with day and night, 24-7. You're just always in pain. It just, it, it, it starts to wear on you. It's, it's interesting that Peter encounters this man and notice Peter's authority when he shows up to talk to Aeneas. He doesn't say, hey, Aeneas, I am sorry you're not feeling well. I'm sorry you're feeling this bad. Come on, I want to I heal you. Let me just get you up here and, and then let's go. His response to Aeneas is Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you, now get up. The authority of his miracle did not rest in Peter and it did not rest even in Peter's words. It rested in the work of Jesus Christ. And Peter recognized that. He acknowledged that. And he says, look, this is Jesus. Here's what I want you to pick up from this. Because you could just read this and not make, not make the uh, conclusion you need to. He's, he's pretty much saying this, that Jesus, our suffering, submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. Our suffering submits to the authority of Jesus Christ. The suffering responded immediately to what Peter said. Immediately he got up and strengthened his legs, grabbed his map, and he's ready to go. Now the question is, why was he paralyzed? Why? Not, not like physically why. Not like, well, he jumped off this thing and he broke his back, or he was born like that. But why? Was there, was there sin? Was there sin of all? Remember, we kind of talked about this in the introduction. Many different reasons that we could experience suffering in our life. But with this man in particular, was it sin in his life? Because that was, that was a common understanding in these days. The disciples, you remember their comment they had with Jesus? When Jesus walked and they saw this guy who was lame, the disciples said, now is he lame because he had sinned or because his parents had sinned? And like I said, that was really a common expectation in the culture of this day. The reason you're sick is because you've sinned. If you stopped sinning, you wouldn't be sick anymore. You, would have, you wouldn't have suffering. It was just a very common belief. And Jesus told him, no, that's, that's not why this person's lame. This person is lame for my glory. To bring glory to God, that, that's why. Now, it's true, we might suffer because of sin. But even if that's the, the case, even if we're suffering because of our sin, that's not its purpose. Suffering happens in our life. It's inevitable. All of us are going to experience it. Sometimes it's physical, like all of a sudden I could see, now I can't see. Uh, I was healthy and all of a sudden now I have cancer or I have some other kind of sickness. It happens to us physically. We all have physical suffering occasionally. We can see it. We, we can respond to it. But suffering also happens emotionally. There are a lot of people who suffer with depression or anxiety. That's suffering. And this is also physical, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes I think we can be too quick with our answers in church when it comes to depression and anxiety. Are you feeling sad? Oh, you, life got you down? Well, 
that can't be from God. Just pop on some K-love because everything in the Christian life should be positive and encouraging all the time, right? No. Because when you're experiencing depression, you don't need a quick encouragement. You need a God who walks through pain with you. I've always been a pastor who's been really transparent. This is, this is a really touchy subject with me. I have battled with, with mental depression and anxiety in my lifetime. It's real. You know, Charles Spurgeon, we all know him. He was the real deal. I guess if you could say he was a superstar, well, no, I'm not even going to say that. <laughs> he was a man who loved Jesus. There we go. And he did incredible things through the power of the Holy Spirit. He told his congregation this, I have spent more days shut up in depression than probably anybody else here. He was said by many to be the greatest preacher ever to live, and he frequently considered quitting the ministry because he was so depressed. Charles Spurgeon. How about Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, uh, but Martin Luther, the German theologian who we have to thank for the Reformation. Guy was the real deal too. Did you know he went through so many dark times that his wife would remove all the knives from their home? She was so afraid he was going to take his life. Here's what he said. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled constantly. I could find no thoughts of Christ, only of desperation and blasphemy of God. It's Martin Luther. Man, why do I say this? I know I've I've gone off on a bit of a rabbit trail, but I want you to see that if you are battling depression, you're not alone. If you have struggled with depression and anxiety, you're not alone. The greatest Christians in history were not those that God delivered from all pain and misery, but those he delivered through their pain and misery. So he's ready to walk with you through the darkness, and and he's willing to do the same for you. And remember, like I said, this is not a pastor preaching up here who has never dealt with this, who's telling you just get it, get over it, get over yourself, pull your pants up, and be be, be strong. Or the bootstrap. Man, I said that wrong. You know, <laughs> Hopefully you got your pants on. Wow. That's going to make the blooper reel. Woo. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Pick yourself. <laughs> you got to laugh or you'll cry. <laughs> so... Pick yourself up. Pick yourself up. Wow. I'm going to lose my job. (laughs) Depression is real. And your pastor's gone through it and I've battled it. And having somebody just tell me to get tougher than my problems isn't enough. I needed a God who walked through those seasons of pain. And I'm telling you. Anybody who tells you differently is wrong. So I want anybody in here to know if you're going through depression and anxiety, I'm encouraging you to get help and just to understand that it's very real what you're struggling with. And I'm thankful for Christian counseling. I'm thankful for guys like Dr. Stuhlreier who has committed his life to walking, helping people walk through that with Jesus. And so know that. But there's this thing that's happening, yeah. There's this thing that's happening in our hearts and our life spiritually when we suffer. We, we experience a variety of ways in which we suffer. And we often just stop and we, we ask God, why? Why? Why can't I get over this? Why? why does God who has the ability to stop this not stop it? Right? If God is good and if God is great, couldn't he just end all this pain and suffering in my life? And yet he doesn't. And so my question is, is are we trusting God in that? Are we trusting Jesus to be all that we need? 
because suffering removes the facade of self-reliance and it demonstrates how dependent on God we need to be because you and I can't do it on our own. We absolutely need Jesus Christ. Kind of reminds me of the prophet Habakkuk. Don't you like that name? (laughs) You pregnant moms out there who are having a boy, consider that one, Habakkuk, okay? (laughs) The prophet Habakkuk uh, is that little section in your Bible that you probably flip past it's a couple of chapters. You, you may have to pull the pages apart to get to Habakkuk. But in Habakkuk chapter 1, speaking to God, he says this. And, I, and as I read this, I want you to think, have you ever thought this or said this? He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you not listen? Or cry out about violence and you don't save? Why do you force me to look at the injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict is escalating. Why, God? Why? It's a fair question. He's asking a fair question. He's being honest. He's assessing the things that are happening in the world, and he's asking a simple question. God, I know you are big and capable and strong, so why don't you stop this? Look at the way that that God responds to him. Look at verse five. He says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now, this is how I would say it. This is Justin's translation. God, I'm going through it. Why can't you stop it? Where are you? Why haven't you done this yet? Justin, by the way, you remember me? You remember me in Fairfield, Ohio? Why are you not in my life? Why are you allowing me to go through these things? And God says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Why? Here's here's what these verses teach us, especially going back to Acts, our text. Peter's availability, because he was involved, gives him this open door for ministry. The miracle, besides its obvious impact on the life of Aeneas, was to be used by God to bring large numbers of people in the surrounding region to faith in Jesus Christ. God had a plan. He's working behind the scenes, even in the suffering. God has a plan in your life, even behind all the sufferings. He has a plan. He is directing your steps. That's what the Bible tells us. Now it's time to really believe the Bible or not, right? God's telling you, I'm directing every one of your steps, and even in the dark times, and even in the difficult seasons, I'm a sovereign God who's allowing you to go through this, and I have a plan and a purpose. Now look with me at verse 35. It says, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That was the purpose of the healing. Do you understand that? that? This was the purpose. Here we see it. This was the purpose of the healing, to bring a greater miracle. You say, well, why is that a greater miracle? Why is salvation a greater miracle? (laughs) That's easy. It costs more. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to save people from sin. It brought the greatest results, the salvation of a soul for all eternity. It brought the greatest glory to God as they'll be with him in heaven and have the capacity to do the same with others. So it costs the greatest price. It brought the greatest glory to God and it brought the greatest results. Listen to me, church. Miracles, just for miracles' sake, are really of no purpose. A miracle has to be a sign, and a sign pointing to something. That is that Jesus Christ is alive. Christ is the healer. Christ is the savior. Christ is the deliverer. Come on. In the preaching of the gospel, so that, please hear me today, that we, we are to have faith in the Lord, not a human preacher. We're to have faith in the Lord, not a human preacher, and not even in the miracle. Right? 
The miracles point to something greater. What's it point to? Jesus Christ. That'll change your perspective, won't it? God is sovereign over our suffering. We can trust him. Now look with me at verse 36. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. All right? So Tabitha is the Hebrew word and the Aramaic word that means gazelle, like like a deer. The Greek word is Dorcas. So same meaning, just two different languages. One is Aramaic and Hebrew and the other is Greek. Just so you know, I'd rather be called Aramaic or Hebrew, wouldn't you? (laughs) I remember, I'll never forget this, because Dorcas is not a real common name in America, but it is overseas. And we were traveling somewhere in Latin America, and I was, I was with my son, Asher, and I think he probably maybe was six at the time. And we met a lady by the name of Dorcas. And we spent the afternoon with Dorcas. And then when we were going back uh, to our hotel or our house, not a hotel, we were in El Salvador with Grandma and Grandpa. Going back to Grandma and Grandpa's house, Asher is really emotional. I, I could just tell. He's in the corner. He looks like something happened. I said, Asher, are you okay? And he said, yeah. I just really feel bad for Dorcas. I said, why? Why? And he goes, I just, it's just so sad what happened to her. I said, oh, what happened to her? Did I miss something? What happened, Asher? Is she okay? Yeah, but, you know, mom and dad don't love her. They called her Dorcas. (laughs) And I said, no, that's a real common name. It's a biblical name, Asher. It's it's okay. And and she goes, no, why would anyone call their kid a dork? (laughs) So just so you know, I'd rather be called Aramaic or Hebrew word, but Tabitha Dorcas means the same thing. Beautiful name, actually. But here's what this verse shows us too. This, this verse shows us how you physically express your love for God. We see this here in the life of, of Dorcas. Our works are a physical expression of our love for God. And there's some really important words here. I want you to look. Which, she, and acts. Those are important words because some talk about serving and some do it. Dorcas was somebody who did it. She didn't just talk about it. She is using her life to serve others. Important words there. Verse 37, look with me. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So let me stop right here. This was a Christian. Dorcas was a follower of Jesus. She was a godly woman, and she was serving the Lord, and I want you to notice that she got sick. Don't ever, don't ever let anybody tell you that if you're a really good Christian, you're serving God, you have enough faith that you won't get sick. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. Dorcas got sick. We could get sick. And if Paul had a thorn in his flesh, we could have a thorn in our flesh. If some other people that were godly suffered, we can suffer. There is no Christian fallout shelters, okay? There's no guarantee that we won't have times of sickness, times of loss, times of bereavement. She actually ends up dying. That's what verse 37 says. And also indicates that she had a sickness uh, and she got it and it quickly led to her death. There are a lot of interesting things about this passage that I just read. As I mentioned, Dorcas is a very godly woman. She's a servant of the Lord. We're going to see that she actually made clothes and gave them to people. She helped people out. In fact, today there are ministries called Dorcas Ministries named after this woman. And when we get to heaven, we can meet her. She was probably an amazing human being, but she got sick and she died. And the normal customs in those days were that you you buried a person that died immediately. 
Today you call 911 or the coroner and, and they take them away. They go to a place where they prepare the body, maybe a week or two later you have a funeral. They're either buried, you know, it's just this long process. But in those days, a very warm, humid area, they didn't have the means or the refrigeration or other things that we would have today to preserve the body. So they would rapidly bury the body. They would rapidly bury people in those days. Now, the further you got outside of Jerusalem, the less restricted it was, but, but that was the general rule. They would die, and within hours, they would be putting you into the ground. So they would really want to make sure that the person who they're putting in the ground is really dead um, because they wouldn't want to be buried alive. But what's interesting about our text is it says uh, they washed her and laid her in the upper chamber. She was not buried right away. The upper chamber would be like a guest room, okay? It would be a place where they would have their meals. Remember, Jesus had his last supper in the upper room. It, it could be that they knew Peter was nearby and they had enough faith that the, they're going to call the apostle Peter, expecting God to answer Peter's prayer and raise their dear Dorcas from the dead. So they just wash her corpse and they lay her in this upper chamber. The text says it, it was near Joppa, just so you know, that's 12 miles. So that'd take about three hours walking, for me, probably four it's estimated you can walk about 12 miles in three hours. I might get four. <laughs> but the disciples had heard that Peter was there and they sent two men to him. They wanted him to come and pray. Look with me at verse 39. So Peter rose and went, went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing t- tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So this, this woman found... Again, just looking at Dorcas's life, she found the key to a fulfilling Christian life. She had her eyes off of herself. She was the kind of member that every single pastor prays for. Her life was about other people. She was a servant. Tabitha was a Proverbs 31 lady. She extends her hands to the poor. She spreads out her arms to the needy. Just like it says in Proverbs. She was that kind of person. She saw the need people had and she went to minister to that need. And so when you have a person like that in a church who dies or who goes to be with the Lord, it's wonderful for that person, but it's sad for the church. It's sad for those that are left behind. And when you get somebody that amazing to leave, to leave your presence, it it leaves a big void. And so these people that are weeping, they're weeping for for themselves, not for her. (laughs) They're weeping for themselves because the fact is that there's this huge vacancy that she has left in the church in this community. Look with me at verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. He does several things here. I want you to take note. First, he removes all of the people from the room. This, is, this speaks to me. This is, this is different because today I see a lot of people that want an audience. They want, they want a crowd. They really, if, if there's going to be a miracle, they want it on YouTube. They want it on TV. They, they want everybody to see it. In fact, sometimes I, I've been in churches before where people want to go up to the stage and, and call out a miracle. It, it just, it's so unique to me. It stands out to me that Peter removes all of them from the room. This isn't going to be on television. It's, it isn't going to be Peter the evangelist, healing evangelist. Watch Peter's healing ministry. There's no flash. There's no show. There's no fanfare. There's no demonstration. It's just with one person in the room. 
That sticks out to me. And, and here's else what I want you to know. She gets up from the dead. So we have this power encounter that happens. But before the power comes, the prayer happens. Listen to me, church. If you want the power, you start with prayer. Because once you pray, you can expect the power. But don't expect power until you pray. So get everybody out and just get down and start praying. And once you have done prayer, now you can be open and expect the power. But one will bring the other and you can't reverse that. Now this, this is just, it's amazing to me. I want, I want you to know something that I, I get coached by different mentors. I've talked to you. In fact, they've signed me up to be a coach. You can pray for the, the unlucky fellow that I get to coach. But one, one of my coaches, he's a number person. He's, he's a system person, and he's, he's coaching me how to, to grow a church. Really, sometimes I think he's just coaching me how to grow numerically. This was on live stream, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I tell him how I feel all the time. He loves me. I love him. So, so there were, you know, in the last three years, we've grown, by the way. Did you know our church as a whole, in the last two years, each year we've grown by 100 people? Is that not amazing? Is that not something to praise God about? So I remember him sitting in my office and he's going over my chart. And at the end of every coaching session, he'll tell me, hey, okay, Justin, here's your homework. Here's what you need to do. Implement this system. Do this. And you guys know your pastor. Sometimes I'm a little unorganized. Sometimes I forget. And so I hadn't seen him in about a year. And so he came in and he looked at the chart that we had printed off. And he said, wow, man, your church has grown. This is incredible. And he said, so you've been following the systems, huh? Can I see, can I see a report on that? And I said, look, <laughs> I didn't follow the system. I, I said, I didn't do any of my homework. I'm sorry. And he goes, but you grew. And I said, yeah, I know. And I, I said, he goes, so what did you do that, you, that caused the growth? I couldn't really give him an answer. But he said, well, figure it out. Figure out what you did that caused growth. And so I was doing this. And this is no lie, I tell you the truth. There was a group, they, they meet on Tuesdays and they pray, they pray together in our prayer chapel. By the way, you can go any Tuesday you want and join them for prayer. This group also started, or I, this group or another group started doing intercessory prayer while we preach and while we do our service. And they're meeting in one of the rooms while we do our service. And I literally was looking at the growth and seeing when we grew. Did you know it was when they started those prayer groups? Those prayer meetings. Look, there is power in prayer. I get people all the time that come up and say, Pastor Justin, you ought to make the, the altar call longer. Or you ought to call for prayer more. You ought to call. Here, here's the real deal. If, if you're not praying at your house, you're not going to pray here either. If, you, if you're not praying in your life, I can set, I've set up prayer meetings before in the last three years where we get maybe 3% of the church population to come out. But there's something powerful here because people want the, the power. They want to see God move. They just don't 